Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 155, Stalin Bio, Part 2. Last time, Yosef Jugashvili, later Koba, then Stalin, had entered into this world with all the joy and heard of it. His father, Beso, had had the potential for providing more than a subsistence life, but had lost it either through drink, the abuse of his family, or the despair over the loss of his first two sons. As for Iosef's mother, Keke, she stuck by her son, made him stick by her, but did what she needed to do to give him the best chance he had of making his way in the world, in the town of Gori. Alas, she also beat young Iosef when he did not measure up, but all that seemed to be paying off, as the teenager had been allowed to sit for the entrance exam of the Theological Seminary School of Tiflis, and with all his hard work over the years of absorbing all the books he could, Soso easily cleared the exams. Iosef would be a priest. K.K.'s fondest hope was about to come true. But back to reality, as Iosef or Soso, his given name, then Koba, his chosen nickname, was about to enter the six-year course, the question of money came up. Where was the annual tuition of 40 rubles to come from, or the 100 rubles for room and board? This also begged the question, why had KK and Soso turned down a full state scholarship at the secular teacher training school? Simply because, as all evidence points to, KK and Soso were truly devout. But the mother and son were not alone in the world, even though Soso's father, Beso, had left them behind. Keke's extended family was also in Gori, as was Beso's family, not to mention the two other families that had been longtime friends of the Jugashvili's. So there would be support for the boy, but first Keke was determined to see what help could be obtained from the state. Keke had her 16-year-old son fill out a petition for a scholarship. The response was, yes, though a partial one. He would be given free room and board, but that left the matter of tuition. Then in stepped Koba's all-but-official surrogate father, Koba Ignatashvili, on that score. So the boy's immediate future was secure. However, it wouldn't take much to knock him out of his school chair where he would be forced to give up his dreams and begin a life of labor. The mother and son started their trek to the capital. When Russia annexed eastern Georgia in 1801, the city of Tiflis was already an old city, hundreds of years older than Kiev, certainly older than the newer Moscow or St. Petersburg. The name itself, Tiflis, is its Persian name, simply copied by the Russians. And by the time young Koba was ready to start school, the city had about 160,000 people residing in it. 
but because families stuck to each other, took care of each other, it also had a small-town feeling. Yet the majority of Armenians affected the feel of the city as well. In the last 100 years, tens of thousands of Armenians, many influential, or those that would soon be, came to dominate much of the city's civilian administration, except at the top, of course. Those positions were filled by Russians selected by Moscow. Tiflis's 25% Georgian population was struggling just to have some influence over their city. In September of 1894, Soso entered the seminary, age 16, but he did not exit the place six years later as a priest, according to plan. Instead, he came out a Marxist and revolutionary. How did this alternative path come about? The answer, in all its complexities, started out with a mentor. For Marxism did not first bloom in Georgia, of course. It was one of the many isms to erupt from post-revolutionary France, when a better form of government, a better way of life, was being sought. But the ideas of Marxism, of combating social injustice, did find its way to Tiflis in the 1880s. And Iosef did not discover Marxism on his own. It was shown to him by an influential boy just a few years older than himself, who would hold sway over many young boys at the seminary. In his early 20s, Vladimir Lado Ketskovili, himself the son of a priest, would come to hate the unfairness of the world and preach his anger to those younger than himself, who, it must be said, had yet to learn the ability to decide such weighty topics on their own. Soon Soso, the gifted autodidact, found something to sink himself into, while seemingly helping the world. Call him a priest without the collar, and instead had a soul of fire and anger. But how did this transformation take place? First, a fish out of water. Gone was the relatively simple town of Gori, replaced by the vastly more urban Tiflis. Next, Soso, at first, didn't even get to see much of the capital. Instead, his world was reduced to the Stone Stack, as it was called by the seminarians, a four-story bastion that was the seminary. His days of exploring, of running around relatively free, were gone. Also, this new world exerted total control over his daily life. At 7 a.m., the bells rang, waking the students for prayer. Then came breakfast, followed by classes until 2 p.m. in the afternoon. There was a meal at 3, which was followed by the shortest hour of the day, where the boys were allowed outside the stone walls. But check-in was at 5 p.m., followed by evening prayers, then a light supper at 8. After that, the next two hours were for homework, then bedtime at 10 p.m. For someone like Soso, who was the apple of his mother's eye and had, until recently, the run of Gori, the seminary must have felt like a prison. It certainly did to one of Iosef's contemporaries, another child named Soso. Their free spirits and free thought were now hemmed in. The only free time was on Sundays, after services, which lasted three to four hours, with the boys standing the entire time. But, to paraphrase a saying, the church 
took away with one hand, but gave with the other. No, the boys could not go out, were checked up on at night by priest inspectors, but had each other for company. And yet, in some ways, that was not even true, as the inspectors got some of the more trusted students to snitch on the rest. As for the students, most were bright teenagers who got tremendous pleasure out of exchanging ideas, their ideas, and debating with others of their temperament and academic success. For most of them, for now, this was enough. It was an exciting departure from their previous lives, being exposed to sacred text, church history, and Russian imperial history. These were most of the subjects bantered back and forth between the young men. But Koba was about to enter an intellectual war zone, but it's not clear how much of this he knew. Of the two dozen teachers, only a few were Georgian, the rest Russian, with hardcore pro-Russian views. Along with them were two priest minders, whose job it was to constantly watch the boys and make sure they were true to their studies and to Russia. If not, out they went, destroying the hopes and dreams of the students and their families. Before Koba came here, there had been many such expulsions, but the students had decided to fight back. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Themselves being the sons of Orthodox priests, the teenagers couldn't or wouldn't take this as they saw it, overhanded, bordering on abusive mistreatment anymore. Secret discussion circles were created. Illegal newsletters, writing of their anger and of their treatment were produced and passed around. But there was also an element of Georgian nationalism involved. In 1884, ten years before Soso came, one student slapped his teacher across the face for referring to Georgian as dog-speak. This description was hardly kind of the older Russian man. But as the boys all knew, proudly so, that Georgia had converted to Christianity 500 years before Russia did, the offender was expelled and sent away. Then, in 1886, two years later, an expelled student, but one not sent far away to a punishment battalion, like the previous student, stabbed and killed his former teacher, with a traditional caucus dagger, most assuredly to get his point across. That was when the storm truly broke, for many of the students either spoke up for the killer or would not speak against him. Some 60 students were expelled. By the 1890s, the students were showing their distrust and hatred of the school's ways with strikes. Their largest protest came in November of 1893. Their demands were simple. Better food, a let-up of the oppressive spine, a creation or reinstitution of the Department of Georgian Language, and to be allowed to sing hymns in their native language. But the Russian authorities 
not taking this local dispute seriously, or thoughtfully, reacted harshly. This time, 87 students were expelled. As for Yosef, when he started classes, he did well at first, for the first few years. He had always done well in school. His grades consisted of mostly A's and B's, and he also became the school's lead tenor, no small feat. Yet Soso did receive two C's for composition and Greek. Yet the boy would take umbrage on the first C, as he had started writing poems with a pro-Georgian bent. But more importantly, the young man was beginning to do more than just memorize facts from books or his teachers. He soon started writing down his thoughts in a notebook, taking what he had learned and applying it to real life, or things he had seen or experienced. It was Iosef's beginning of real learning, as in the ways of real life and applied ideas. But forcing itself into Soso's world, indeed through the very stones of the seminary, were outside events, events that would shake the boy's life, Tiflis, and the Russian Empire itself. On the horizon was the ever-surging idea of nationalism, in this case, Georgian nationalism. When Iosef Jugashvili was one year old, two proud Georgian noblemen, Prince Chavjavezda and Prince Serateli, started the Society for the Spread of Literacy among Georgians. They were noble-born, but also writers. Georgia, like many city-states or small countries, was made up of various groups, but they shared a common language. And remember, Georgia wasn't always a part of the Russian Empire. The two princes weren't looking to break away from Russia, but to them there seemed no harm in raising Georgian pride and nationalism through their common language. And because language was the sole avenue open to them, they focused on the area's schools, libraries, and bookshops. However, to the Russian administrators, anything that raised or praised a cultural aspect that wasn't Russian was treason. In fact, Georgia, to those Russian officials, did not exist. Not anymore. It was now just the two provinces. Tiflis and Kutaisi. So, not only was the term Georgia not to be used or printed, but the Georgian language was equally not to be seen or used. Yet, as the local language was not written in Cyrillic or Latin letters, the literary watchdogs did not honestly know what to be on the lookout for. Hence, the wiggle room. Back at the seminary, Georgian language lessons had been done away with in 1872. Georgian history was removed three years later. Ironically, as local Orthodox services were carried out in Church Slavonic, the vast majority of Georgians had no idea what was written on the page, as did many true Russians who were just illiterate. When Iosef started the seminary in 1894, the school had been shut down the year before. Such was the extent of trouble the students gave their masters. But in 1894, the school was reopened, just as the young Stalin sat for his entrance exams. What's more, the school's leaders, hoping to dispel some of their troubles, gave in and allowed Georgian history and literature to be taught, yet hung on to their harsh practices of spying 
and punishments. Again, one wonders how much of this Yosef was aware of. Regardless, the 16-year-old jumped into his studies and continued on with his personal history of doing well. During his second year, Soso, perhaps dreaming of also becoming a poet, or simply desiring to express himself, wrote a series of poems in Georgian, and, without asking for permission or advice, submitted them to the noble-born writer, Chef Chevatsa. His editor read over what had been submitted, was impressed, and published five of them in the local newspaper, Iveria, a term that means Eastern Georgia. As the author was obviously a student, the poem came under the Georgian pseudonym Iosif Soselo. Within these five poems, the writer spoke of the gentleness of animals and music versus the violence of man. He also celebrated the 50th jubilee of a Georgian noble-born poet, Prince Eristavi, Stalin's favorite. Other poems were published the following year. But it would be going too far to say that the poems were brilliant. But as they waxed longingly of lost love and lost Georgian patriotism, they were well-timed and thus well-received. Yet, this was not the start of Koba, the revolutionary. It was simply a young boy, almost a man, who was stretching himself intellectually. But this was not seen for what it was by the schoolmasters, so their hunt for nonconformity continued. Yet it was the first step, even though Iosef did not know where it would lead or that he was on a path at all. He was simply trying to find out about the world and himself. But then came other breaks, cracks really, from the church, from Russian loyalty, from his and his mother's hopes for his future. Nationalism was coming, and for Yosef, that meant Georgian nationalism. The same would be true for many other young men, including, later, a teenage Adolf Hitler, also in school with passing thoughts of becoming a priest or an artist. But as for Yosef, by his third year of school, his grades would begin to drop. He would become a member of a secret student circle and read many books though allowed by Russian authorities, were not by his seminary teachers. Thus the pressure to conform continued. But then the ever more disaffected student would meet a string of mentors who were focused on defying their Russian masters in being allowed to learn of forbidden ideas and exhuming Georgian pride. But even then, Iosef still hoped to get through his six-year course, to learn what he could and make something of himself. His cause was not the disruption of the established ways or disloyalty to Russia, but to simply know of the larger world and the ideas within it. And yet, his temperament, his desire to be in charge, whether something he was born with or learned from his strong-willed parents or in reaction to church authorities, began to come to the fore. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. 
Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I haven't done this for a while, and I apologize, but I'd just like to say hello and thank you to my latest members and those that have donated. So as far as my newest members who have come on board, and as John pointed out to me when we were in uh, Las Vegas recently, um, I don't mention this enough. So I have a membership series as well uh, that puts out two extra episodes a month. Uh, I just kind of cover the stuff behind the main story of World War II. So if you're interested in more episodes, um, you can always go to worldwar2podcast.net and click on the membership tab and it will tell you all about it. So five bucks a month, you get two extra episodes. Just think about it. So as far as my latest members, um, I'd like to say hello and welcome aboard to Timothy M. from Lakeside, California. Matthew O. from Yarraville, Australia, Gregory S. from Carlton, Australia, Pete S. from Houston, Texas, Timothy D. from North Smithfield, Rhode Island, Audrin R. from Lyon, France, Andrea P. from St. Louis Park, Minnesota, Lauren R. from Seaside, California, Jonathan B. from Rogers, Arizona, Ross L. Sorry, Ross, it didn't tell me where you were from. I hope that doesn't mess too much with your psyche. Um, Michael S. from North Vancouver, Canada. Donald S. from Rockdale, Texas. Uh, Stephen P. from Ardmore, Tennessee. Robbie M. Sorry, Robbie, I know we, uh, we exchanged a couple emails. Um, sorry, but I'm not sure where you're from. Uh, Brian M. from Morton, Illinois. Hassan L. And again, Hassan, I'm sorry, I'm not sure where you're from. Penelope Y. from Cotslow. I'm sure I butchered that. Australia. Mark F. from Heartland, Wisconsin. Kevin D. from Dublin, Ireland. Stephen M. from West Itslip, New York. Ethan I. from San Diego, California. And Gary O. from Wichita, Kansas. And for those that made donations recently, I'd like to thank Michael R. from St. Albans, Australia. And Ethan I. again from San Diego, California. So, Ethan, if you're the same one who became a member and donated, mwah, Thank you very much. So I will see you next week with another episode. And again, if you're interested in membership or at least checking out what it's all about, you can go to the website, worldwar2podcast.net. Take care, everyone. And now a game of commercial chicken brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long flow can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of commercial chicken brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long flow can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.